Well, many of you who were with us last Sunday will remember that I spoke to you last week on this topic, uh, the Pentecost prescription. The Pentecost prescription. And what we learned last week was that on the day of Pentecost, as recorded in Acts chapter number 2, the Holy Spirit of God descended from heaven to permanently fill the believers, the disciples in Jerusalem, the church of Jesus Christ. On that day of Pentecost, God came by his spirit to indwell every believer. And we learned last Sunday that this permanent infilling of the church was God's remedy for a dead and empty and stone-cold religion which had been prescribed on tablets of stone, God remedied that empty religion by writing his law by his spirit on our hearts. As Jeremiah promised, the day would come when God said, I will make a new covenant and I will write my law upon their hearts. Pentecost was God's remedy for cold and dead religion. And I want you to know, and I want all of you to listen to me very, very carefully at this point. I want you to know that the indwelling Holy Spirit remains God's cure for every Christian life and for all of Christ's church today. I want to say it again. The indwelling Holy Spirit remains God's cure for every Christian life and for all all of Christ's church today. I was reading this week in a book titled The Holy Spirit by Charles Ryrie, and he states it this way. He says, the Holy Spirit is the antidote for every error. He is the power for every weakness. He's the victory for every defeat and the supply for every need. He says, the Holy Spirit is the answer for every question. Ryrie goes on to say, and the Holy Spirit is available to every believer because he lives in each believer's heart and life. And I would give a hearty amen. I agree with that hopeful statement. The Holy Spirit is the cure. And so today we are going to begin a teaching series called Life in the Spirit. And for five Sunday mornings, we are going to be examining what the Bible says about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to frame this discussion for you to make sure that you do not doubt its relevance to your life. I don't want anybody watching me today to suddenly say, you know what, that doesn't apply to me. Let me frame the discussion for us just a bit. You know, the Apostle Paul more than once uh, draws a sharp contrast between two different kinds of people in the world. And in fact, I would even say he draws a sharp contrast between two different kinds of Christians within the church. That is, the Christian or the person who walks after the flesh as compared to the person who walks after the Spirit. Paul tells us there are two kinds of lives that we can choose between and that the difference is stark. 
Now, I'm going to read to you what Paul said about this from the book of Romans. Maybe you'll turn with me. Romans chapter number 8, beginning in verse number 1. Romans chapter 8, verse number 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. The King James goes on to say, Those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Again, in verse 4, he uses the same terminology. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Again, in verse 5, same terminology. For they that are after the flesh do mind or obey the things of the flesh, and they that are after the Spirit do mind or obey the things of the Spirit. Now, three times in this one chapter, in fact, in the first five verses of Romans 8, Paul says, look, there are two paths that you can choose. You can live after the flesh or you can live after the Spirit. The word after simply means to be, uh, really it means to be down from. If you think about being downstream from something, what flows down that stream flows to you. Uh, it means to uh, follow after, or here's a way to say it, it means to march according to the beat of that drum. You can march according to the flesh drum, or you can march according to the spirit drum. You can live downstream from the flesh, all of the flesh in the world pouring into you. Or you can live downstream from the spirit, all of the things of the spirit pouring into you. What Paul says is there are two ways that you can live and the, and the differences are vast. He goes on to describe what those differences are like in the book of Galatians. Let me just show it to you. Galatians chapter 5 beginning in verse 19. Now let's remember... Paul says in Romans 8, uh, there are some who walk after the flesh. There are some who live after the flesh. There are some who mind the things of the flesh. And what is that life like? Galatians 5.19, now these are the works of the flesh. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, which just means immoral sensuality. Uh, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, striving, jealousies, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, uh, drunkenness, revelings, and such the like. It's almost if, uh, as if after listing eight or ten or a dozen uh, characteristics of the fleshly life, he just stops with the list and says, and things like that. Now that's the life of the flesh. It goes on in Galatians chapter 5 to tell us what the life after the Spirit is like. Remember Romans 8, there's some who walk after the Spirit. There's some who mind the things of the Spirit. There's some who live in the Spirit. And what is that life like? Galatians 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering or patience and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and meekness and temperance or self-control. So there's the stark difference that Paul draws. You can live after the flesh if you want your morality and your character and your relationships and your marriage, if you're married, and your family, and your interactions in the community, if you want your life to be marked by revelings and fightings and disputings and, and contention and strife and hatred and anger, 
You live after the flesh. But if you want your character and your morality and your marriage and your relationships and your reputation to be marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, meekness and faithfulness and self-control, then you can live after the Spirit. Paul could not be more plain. There are two paths to choose. And the path that you choose will determine the character of your life. So if you want a different life, then welcome. Welcome to life in the Spirit. If you want your marriage to be different, then welcome to life in the Spirit. If you want your relationships beyond your marriage, uh, your family, extended family in the community to be different than it is, welcome to life in the Spirit. And if you want your character to be transformed, welcome to life in the Spirit. So over five weeks, we're going to talk about this life in the Spirit. Let me tell you what the, uh, what the series is going to dive into, sort of the table of contents for this series, Life in the Spirit. We're going to be thinking about five ways that the Holy Spirit renews and refreshes our lives. We're going to talk about the fact that the Holy Spirit awakens our heart, the Holy Spirit renovates our mind, the Holy Spirit quickens our bodies, the Holy Spirit repurposes our abilities, And the Holy Spirit secures our eternity. That's our plan. You'll be glad to hear that's not our plan for today. That's our plan for the next five weeks. And I hope you'll stay tuned and that you'll join in each week. Well, do you have your Bibles open still to John 15? If you went to Romans and Galatians, go back to John 15. Let's read our text. We're going to begin in verse number 26. John chapter 15 and verse number 26. The Bible says, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me. And you also shall bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things have I spoken unto you, that you should not be offended. They will put you out of the synagogues, You will be rejected, he says. Yea, the time comes that whosoever uh, kills you will think that he is doing God's service. You will be persecuted, he says. And these things will they uh, do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you that when the time shall come, you may remember that I have told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I'm going away. I go my way to him that sent me. And none of you is asking me, where are you going? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment 
because the prince of this world is judged. Now, Jesus is speaking in this passage about the Holy Spirit. So it begs the obvious question, who is the Holy Spirit? If we're going to spend more than a month talking about life in the Spirit, we should ask and answer the question, who is the Holy Spirit? And the text answers this question for us unmistakably. Now, before I show you the answer, though, let me just make sure that you know, and I'm confident most of you are aware, that when you are reading in John 15 and 16, you are reading the words of Jesus. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, all these these verses are red. Jesus is speaking, and he's speaking to his disciples in the waning moments of his time with them, literally in the mere hours before he is arrested and on the next morning will be crucified. Now, this has been a heavy and emotional night uh, for the disciples, and in many ways a confusing night for them. Uh, He's already told them on this particular evening that he's going away from them. He's leaving them. This is back in chapter number 13 and verse 33. He says, little children, only for a little while longer am I with you. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. So he's told them that he's leaving them. That's caused them great sorrow and despair. He has, however, promised them that he's not leaving them forever. That he will, in fact, come again and receive them and us with him so that we can be with him forever. This is in John chapter 14, as many of you know. Beginning in verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house are many mansions. I would not, t- <clears throat> if it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'll come again and get you. So he says in chapter 13, I'm leaving you. Chapter 14, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back for you. We still look for his return today. The fulfillment of John 14, verse number 3, I will come again. That verse could be fulfilled today. We still look for that coming of the Lord. He said, I'm going to leave, but I will return. But then he goes on in this passage to promise them that between his departure and his return, he would not leave us alone. He promised that he would send the comforter. You see this in John chapter 14. Look at verse number 16. He says, and I will pray the Father... And he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and he shall be in you. Here's the promise of verse 18. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Now, I want you to do something, uh, if you have a pen, and I didn't bring my pen today, but I'm going to pretend I've got one with my finger. I I want you to take your pen. I want you to circle some words in in John 14, verses 16, 17, and 18, which reflect a Trinitarian view of who our God is. This passage talks to us about the Trinity. So in verse 16, circle the personal pronoun I, and I will pray. Who's praying in verse 16? Jesus is praying. So Jesus is speaking in in verse 16. He says, I will do this. Verse 16, circle I. I will pray. Now circle the Father. So what you have in, in this verse is Jesus, the Son, and then God, the Father. Jesus says, I will speak to the Father. 
And he says, goes on in verse 16 to say, and he, the father, shall give you another comforter, circle the word comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Circle that, the spirit or the spirit of truth. Now what you have in verses 16 and 17 is a clear statement about the Trinity. I, Jesus, will pray to the Father and he will send the Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Go back to our text. You see this exact same language in chapter 15 and verse number 26. Circle it again. But when the Comforter, there it, there it is, circle it, the Comforter, whom I, there's the personal pronoun, whom I will send unto you from the Father. Even the Spirit, the Comforter is the Spirit, even the Spirit of truth which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me. So Jesus in this passage says, I and me, that's God the Son. He speaks of the Father twice. The Father will send the Spirit who is the Comforter. Now you're tracking with me? What these passages make clear is what the Bible uh, repeats and reaffirms many, many times. It is that our God is one God who exists in a trinity, a triune Godhead. He exists in three persons. Now listen, it's not three gods. It's one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 is the foundational verse of all things Judeo-Christian. It is the foundational verse of monotheism, which says it is the great Shema. Uh, it begins with, hear, O Israel, Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. It is the foundational truth of the Bible. It is the foundational truth of who God is. There are not many gods. There is not a multiplicity of gods. There is not a pantheon of gods. There's not a God of the moon and a God of the sun and a God of fertility and a God of the sea. There is one God. But that one God exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Be careful here. It's not one God who functions in three ways or one God who does three different things or has three different offices. No, it is one God eternally existent in three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by the way, you see this over and over in the Bible, both in explicit ways and in more implicit ways. Um, you see this in the baptism of Jesus explicitly. Jesus is baptized in uh, Matthew chapter number 3. The Bible says that when Jesus came up out of the Jordan River, out of the water, that the Spirit of God descended upon him in the form of a dove, and that the heavens opened and the voice of God the Father was heard from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. In one verse, Matthew 3, I think verse 19, it says there's the son standing in the river, the spirit descending like a dove and God speaking from heaven. God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter number 28, the great commandment, the great commission. Jesus instructed the church to go into all the world and to teach all nations and then baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son 
and the Holy Spirit. Every time I lay someone in the waters of the baptism and bring them up, I say, buried with Christ in baptism, baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, one of the most beautiful places. I don't even know if maybe you're familiar with this verse. It's one of those verses that just kind of hangs out at the end of a book and maybe we don't read it very much, but I want you to mark it. 2 Corinthians chapter number 13 verse 14 is the very last verse of 2 Corinthians. It is a beautiful benediction that Paul writes to the Corinthian believers. Listen to what he says. 2 Corinthians 13 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Do you see the Trinity? It's a little more implicit there. The, may the, the, the love of God and the grace of Christ and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So let's answer the question. Who is the Holy Spirit? Write it down. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. He is as much God as God the Son, Jesus, is God, and as God the Father is God. He is equally divine with God the Son and God the Father. The Holy Spirit is God. Now, loved ones, knowing this, understanding that the Holy Spirit is God should prevent us from ever thinking of Him or speaking of him as a mere force or a power or an energy. Can I say it this way? The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. When we speak of the Holy Spirit, we shouldn't say, well, it, the Holy Spirit did this, or it was present today. No, the Holy Spirit is, is God. He is a divine person. And the Holy Spirit demonstrates all of the characteristics, all of the attributes of personality. The Holy Spirit has an intellect. He thinks. He, he, uh, he has an emotion. He feels. The Bible says don't grieve the Holy Spirit. He has a will. He directs and redirects. The Holy Spirit is active. He guides and he teaches and he restrains and he anoints and he intercedes and he commissions. These are all attributes and activities of God, the Holy Spirit. And one thing that the Holy Spirit does, as our text tells us in John 15, is the Holy Spirit convicts. He convicts. And it is by this act of convicting that the Holy Spirit awakens our hearts. In fact, I would say it to you this way. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing conviction that is the means of our salvation in Christ. I'll say it again. It is the act of the Holy Spirit in convicting which brings about our salvation. Here's the way it works. Write it down this way. We're going to learn that the Holy Spirit draws a person to faith in Christ. This is what it means to convict. The Holy Spirit is the one who draws a person to faith in Christ. In our text in John chapter 15 and 16, 
Jesus makes clear that this is the uh, primary ministry of the Holy Spirit. Look at it. John chapter number 16 and verse number 8. He says, And when he, the Holy Spirit, is come, he will, underline this word or circle it, reprove. (laughs) When the Holy Spirit is come, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now what does the word reprove mean? The word simply means to convict of a wrong. Uh, It is to call out. It is to convince someone of their fault or of their guilt. Now we have a word for this. It's called Holy Ghost conviction or Holy Spirit conviction. By the way, don't get, tight, don't get bogged down in, in, is it Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit? Most modern translations use uh, the, the term Holy Spirit. King James uh, uses the term Holy Ghost. Same thing. Doesn't matter which one. We call conviction Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit conviction. Now here's the fact. It is by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that a person is able to come to faith in Christ. Sadly, so much of ministry in our day, so much of contemporary Christianity depends on the power of persuasion to try to bring somebody to faith in Jesus. Too often, sadly, it depends on manipulation to try to lead someone uh, to faith in Jesus and to get them to respond to Christ. And yet, here's what Jesus teaches us. Persuasion won't bring about a true conversion. And manipulation certainly won't bring about a true conversion. Only the drawing of the Holy Spirit will bring about a true conversion. I love the way Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When he reminds the Corinthians of how he behaved, how he ministered when he came to them. Listen to these words. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 1. He says, And I, brethren... When I came to you, did not come with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And when I was with you, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with enticing, persuasive words of man's wisdom, but rather in demonstration of the Spirit and His power. And he said, I I knew that the Spirit had to be at work or else verse 5 goes on to say that your faith should rest not in the power of men but in the power of God. Here's what Paul said. The only thing that would bring the Corinthians to faith in Jesus was the power of God, not the wisdom of an intellect or the wisdom of philosophy or the persuasion of Paul's great oratory ability. The power of the Holy Spirit is what does it. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to convict men of their sin, to convict women of their guilt, and to draw us to faith in Jesus Christ. Now this is absolutely essential in a person's conversion. It is not that it's difficult. It is impossible for a person to come to faith in Jesus absent the Holy Spirit convicting them and drawing them to faith. Now, this is what Jesus said. John 6, 44, Jesus said, No person, no man, can come to uh, me except the Father which has sent me draw him. And he draws him by the Holy Spirit. So get this. Make it 
uh, clear in your heart, mark it down. The Holy Spirit draws a person to faith in Christ. So how does he does it? Uh, how, does he, how does he does it? How does he do it? Well, he tells us in this passage that he convicts people of their sin in rejecting Christ. That's the way that he draws us to faith. He begins by convicting us of the sin of rejecting Jesus. Now listen to what he said. I'm in chapter 16 and verse number 8. And when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will reprove the world of sin, skip to verse 9, of sin because they believe not on me. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit convicts people of not believing in Jesus. Now here's the truth. All violation, every violation of God's law is sin. But the greatest sin is the sin of rejecting or dismissing or disbelieving in Jesus. That's the greatest sin. You know, all of us are born with a conscience. And it is possible to, over the process of time and with more and more sinning and rejecting uh, the God of our conscience, it's possible, the Bible says, to, to harden or to even sear our conscience, make it impenetrable. But we're born as children with a conscience. That's the reason you can rebuke a small child, even when they rebel or they're ugly or they're mean-spirited or they lie or they're, 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 they're uh, uh, um, uh, possessive or greedy or won't share with their toys. You can rebuke them and that little chin will quiver. You know, when they're little, they're so sensitive to, in their conscience. But what happens as we get older? Our conscience gets a little more hardened. Well, see, the truth is our conscience is that inborn, that, that, uh, that image of God in our lives that guides our morality. But it's shaped by family, it's shaped by culture, it's shaped by so many things where we tend to compare ourselves to one another, right? So my conscience feels okay as long as I'm as good as most of the people around me. Here's what conviction does. It goes beyond conscience... And it doesn't compare to one another. It shows us how that Christ has taken our sin and we have been completely dismissive of the great grace of Jesus in taking our sin. We've rejected him, verse number 9. He convicts us of the sin of not believing in Christ. God gave his son. His son took our sin. He was nailed to the cross and we go on through life dismissing that as if it doesn't even matter. Holy Spirit conviction gives us a great sense of brokenness and guilt that we have rejected what Christ has done for us. The greatest sin is the rejection of Jesus. And he says that this is what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts people of the sin of rejecting Jesus. And the second thing that he says that the Holy Spirit does in conviction is that he convicts people of Christ's righteousness by his resurrection. Now this is a word where this is a place where I would use the word convince instead of convict. It means the same thing. But I would even say it this way. He in his conviction, he convicts us of our sin and then he convinces us of Christ's righteousness. Verse number 8. Uh, when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin. He will reprove or convict the world of righteousness. What does that mean? Verse 10 explains it. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. What is he talking about? Well, you know that Jesus claimed to be God, right? Jesus claimed divinity. He said, I am the Son of God. 
And it was that claim to being deity, that claim to being God incarnate, that got him crucified. And because of his claim to being God, Jesus was mocked. Why do you think the soldiers in Pilate's hall put a robe around Jesus, a scarlet robe and a crown of thorns on his head? They were mocking his claim to be the king of the Jews. Why do you think they put a, a false reed in, a reed in his hand as a false staff and then they bowed down mockingly and said, Hail, you're the king, right? We're mocking you, making fun. They blindfolded him. If you are God, you know all things. They covered his eyes and then they hit him with their fists. Who hit you, they said. You're God. You should know. They took him to Calvary. Pilate commanded that a sign be written and put above his head on the cross. This is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It was not a declaration in truth. While it was true, it was put there as a mockery. And when the Pharisees and the scribes and and the religious leaders stood around that cross, they said, he claimed that he was the son of God. Let God have him. Let him take him off the cross if he even wants him. And when Jesus died, they were convinced that he was not who he said he was. But guess what? It was on that Sunday morning when Christ rose from the dead and 40 days later when he ascended to the Father, verse 10, I'm going away and you won't see me again. I will be raised and I will ascend. It is that ascension of Jesus. It is that resurrection from the dead that is the vindication of the righteous claims of Jesus Christ. You see, what the Holy Spirit does is he convinces people that Jesus is who he says he is and he convinces them ultimately by the resurrection. Romans 1 and verse 4 says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Here's what the Holy Spirit does. This is the process of conviction. When he convicts people of sin, he lets us know that we have sinned greatly by rejecting Christ and his sacrifice. And then he shows us the glory of the power and the righteousness of Jesus. And we are convinced that Jesus is who he said he was. The sinner under conviction comes to believe that Jesus is the virgin-born Son of Almighty God who bore our sins to the cross, was crucified, buried, and risen again. It is the conviction of the Holy Spirit that causes a hardened, rebellious, disbelieving, skeptic to begin to proclaim with the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. It is the conviction and the convincing of the Holy Spirit which causes a person to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And on the third day he rose again and ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Who could say the Apostles' Creed except the one convinced that it's all true by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit? It's what he does. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin and convinces us that Christ is righteous. And then it's the work of the Holy Spirit, he tells us in verses 8 and 11, that convicts people of judgment by Satan's defeat. He says in verse number 8, When he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will reprove the world of sin 
He will reprove the world of righteousness. And he will convict the world of judgment. Verse number 11 explains he will convict the world of judgment because the world will see that the prince of this world is judged. At the cross, Satan was defeated and his judgment is sure. And under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, when people recognize our own sin and the glories of King Jesus, we will admit that Satan has been defeated and will be judged. And his judgment will be the certain evidence of our own judgment if we reject Christ. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He awakens our hearts through the power of conviction, conviction of our wrong, of Christ's rights, his righteousness, and of the coming judgment. And it's only by trusting in what he did, confessing what we have done, and begging for mercy from judgment, that the salvation that we have hope of in Jesus is realized by the repentant sinner. So know this. Who is the Holy Spirit? He's God. And what does he do? He draws men to faith in Christ. Now there's something else that I want you to see in this passage. And quite honestly, we could almost all say, well, amen. That's what he does. And close our Bibles and be done for the day. And it would have all been true. But there's something else here that I don't want you to miss. Write it down. It is that the Holy Spirit works through engaged believers. I don't want you to miss this because every one of you listening to me who already know Jesus as your Savior might look back to the day of your conversion at this point point, say, Lord, thank you that you convicted me of my sin. Holy Spirit, thank you that you convinced me of who Jesus is. Thank you that you convinced me that I needed to be saved or else be judged. Thank you for your work. Now I'm done, but you can't be done because the passage tells us something else. Look at chapter 15 and verse number 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of the truth, which, te- which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me. That's what we've been talking about. He shall testify of me. Look at the next verse. And you also. Do you see that? And you also. You shall testify of me also. Because you've been with me from the beginning. Look at what, he's, he, uh, what he says in chapter number 16 and verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. To whom? To believers. I will send the Holy Spirit to believers. He will indwell believers. Look at verse 8. And when he comes to you, he will reprove the world. Hello. Do you notice that Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come to the church, but he would reprove or convict the world through his work in the church? Here's what I want you to know. The Holy Spirit does convict of sin and righteousness and judgment, but he does that through believers who are engaged with him in his work. Now, here's something humbling and beautiful beyond description. It is that God the Holy Spirit is active in this world. He is active in the lives of people that he is drawing to himself. People that you and I know and love and interact with. We can't see it. We don't know it. But God the Holy Spirit is reproving them even today. He's convicting them. 
Perhaps he's using this pandemic to shake their world, to get their attention, to scream at them in their pain. As C.S. Lewis once said, he is convicting them. And as he's drawing them to Christ, he, he looks to us and invites us in to the process. He lets us be a part. He lets us draw the net. Now, he didn't have to do that, but he lets us. It's, it's rather like the, the dad who takes his little boy, his little three-year-old boy fishing, and he casts the line, and he baits the hook, and he goes to the right spot. The dad knows all the things to do. He knows the place to go. He knows how to get the, the lure to where the fish are. He puts the lure in the right place. He hooks the fish. He begins to pull the fish in. It's the dad doing all the work, but just before he lands the fish, he hands the pole to his little boy. <laughs> There's a little boy who could never catch a fish in his life. He doesn't have it within him to catch a fish. He doesn't, he doesn't have the power to catch a fish. His dad does, but his dad loves the little boy so much he wants him to be a part. And so he hands him the pole. Do you understand? God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. But he works in the lives of people and allows us to draw the net. You see this over and over in the scriptures. Mark chapter uh, 16 verse 20 says that when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, they went forth, and then it says this, they went forth preaching the gospel and the Lord was working with them. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you shall receive Holy Spirit power and then you shall be my witnesses. Acts chapter 10, Peter was called to the house of Cornelius to preach the gospel to him. Now, if you go read Acts 10, you know what you'll discover? There's an angel talking to Cornelius in Caesarea before Peter ever gets the word to go and preach to Cornelius. There's an angel talking to Cornelius. And the angel doesn't tell him how to be saved. The angel tells him, sin for Peter. He'll tell you how to be saved. That's the goodness of God. Right? That's the grace of God. The angel could have done it, but he invited Peter into it. Uh, it was in Acts chapter number 8 that Philip... Philip was called down to the uh, desert to speak to an Ethiopian eunuch. And God, the, the eunuch was already reading the scriptures. God, by his Holy Spirit, could have convinced him, convicted him, drawn him to faith right there on his own. But he wanted Philip to have that opportunity, sent Philip down. You find in, in Acts chapter number 15, chapter 16, I should say, when Paul uh, makes his first journey across into Europe. He's at Philippi. There's a woman there named Lydia and some other ladies. And the Bible says that Paul speaks to them and God opens Lydia's heart to what Paul was saying. Here's the point. God is at work in people's lives all around us. But as he's convicting them and drawing them to faith in Jesus, convicting them of their sin, convincing them of Christ's righteousness, convincing them to call out for mercy from judgment, he says, hey, here's your opportunity. Become engaged with what I'm doing. Share with them. Draw the net. It stands true. No one comes to faith unless the Holy Spirit draws them. And as he draws them, he allows us the joy, the privilege of drawing the net in partnership with him. And then lastly, what stands to reason from that truth or these two truths that we've learned is this final thing. It is to say that the Holy Spirit awakens both saints and sinners as people come to faith. Remember we said at the beginning that this is what the Holy Spirit does. He awakens the heart. And perhaps you know Jesus and you thought at the beginning, well, this is, 
This is going to be a message for people who don't know Christ. That God's going to awaken their heart to the gospel. That's true. But I want you to know that he needs to awaken your heart as well. He awakens our hearts as well as people come to faith. Would you agree with me? Is it pretty easy for Christian people to become complacent in our faith? Complacent in our faith walk and even become very condemning and critical and judgmental of people who don't know Jesus. And our hearts begin to close up. And our compassion begins to evaporate. And our hearts begin to get smaller instead of larger. And our view of the world and people needing Christ begins to get more narrow instead of larger. We, we begin to look more to ourselves, our four, our church, and we forget the nations. Because our hearts are becoming hardened. Our faith is becoming complacent. Our attitudes are becoming judgmental. Here's the great news. As we allow the Holy Spirit, I'm talking about us believers, as we allow the Holy Spirit to awaken our hearts, to participate with Him in His work of awakening the hearts of lost people, I am, am confident to tell you today that in that moment, our lives are transformed. Our lives are transformed as much as the lives of the people who are coming to faith. I mentioned Peter in Acts chapter 10 when he went to preach the gospel to Cornelius. Cornelius was an Italian Gentile, a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier stationed in Peter's homeland. He was one of the ruling uh, overlords of Peter's people. A Gentile dog in terms of Peter's view of Gentiles. Peter would have never gone to his home. Peter would have never considered having a meal with him. Peter would have never gone to share the gospel with him unless God had changed Peter's heart. And by the time you come to the end of Acts chapter 10, Peter's entire worldview has been transformed by the conversion of one man and his family. Because the Holy Spirit of God took a Christian and awakened his heart so that he might speak into the life of a non-Christian and that heart would be awakened. And both Cornelius and Peter were changed. And so I want to say to you today that this is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is his work to awaken our hearts. So what are we to do? Well, if you don't know Jesus, let me ask you. Is there a sense of believing that's happening in your heart today that hasn't been there before? Is there a longing for God and his righteousness? Is there a sense of accountability to God and a sense of a recognition of your sin, even a guilt knowing that I have sinned against almighty God and Christ took my sin and yet I've been so uncaring about what Christ did for me. Is that happening in your heart? Is the Holy Spirit awakening your heart? Then if he is, call out to him. And I'm going to lead you in prayer in just a moment and invite you to trust in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is calling you to himself and you cannot be saved unless he does so. So as he's drawing you today, trust in Christ. And if you're already a believer and maybe you've been walking according to the flesh, and your character and your life and your morals and your relationships are marked more by envy, strife, immorality than, they are by, than it is by love and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, etc. Then maybe it's time for you to say, Holy Spirit, awaken my heart. 